customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Welcome to the Andy Staples Show, and and finally reunited, and it feels so good. I've been on vacation. He's been on vacation. He's actually still on vacation. Ari Wasserman, coming to you live from a hotel room in Las Vegas. Yeah, I, I think that that's like twenty five percent of the ho- of the podcasts I've ever recorded have been coming live from a Las Vegas uh, hotel room. So. Uh, thanks for having me on. Still, I missed you, man. Uh, and we know we had the recruiting one, but uh, it's good to get back. On, it feels on like a that never happened. Monday show. Yeah. No, I know it, it's been a weird week. Um, but I, I saw the questions that we're going to get into today, and I'm super excited to dive in. That's right. We got a dear Andy slash dear Ari episode. These are questions called from my mailbag and from Ari's mailbag that either didn't make the written product or we just thought were so interesting. We figured we, we'd address it here too, and. I just, these are really interesting and some stuff I hadn't really thought about in a while, mostly because like the the first question we'll get into is about coaching salaries and about, you know, who you're negotiating against. And honestly, Ari, I hadn't thought about this stuff much at all through the pandemic. I've thought about the buyouts and all that when they were, when, when guys were getting fired, but the, the, the raises and, and that sort of thing just hadn't really even crossed my mind but let's let's hear Jacob's question. So here's here's what Jacob asked this week. Dear Andy, I know a lot of coaching salary increases come from a fear about other programs or NFL teams poaching a team's coach. However, many times it seems like those possibilities are more smoke than anything else. Despite that it seems to me that 90% of the time the coach gets a big raise even if their current salary is fair. Do you know if college 80s really have info that the coach might leave or are they just taking the agent at his word? Also, would it be that bad to call a coach's bluff or to let him leave? That is a great question from Jacob, Ari. Yeah, that's a phenomenal question. And it's also like the same thing that happens in life, right? Most people get raises when they have other offers or have leverage, you know. And and I think a lot of times just in college football, a, a head coach's leverage is fear, uh, of losing, yes. uh, you know, of them losing. And sometimes, you know, when you say, who are they negotiating against or why is this happening? It's because a program doesn't want to have to start over. And I think people uh, understand. And, and sometimes it happens with coaches who are kind of just fine. 
you know, not just not yeah. great, not bad, but, you know, have the program at a steady pace. They haven't reached their peak yet. And then you put yourself in a position to think, well, if we lost this person, whether or not that's true, how much money a is it going to cost to do to hire a coaching firm and, and do all the things that you have to do to hire a coach? How much is it going to set the program back? Which recruits are you going to lose? Um, how many more years until we're back in this position? And sometimes the hassle of all that, the, the, the fear of that um, drives crazy extensions, crazy raises and crazy buyouts. And then if things don't go well in two years, you think, wow, that's a, that's a lot of money. And it's funny because the thing about the coaching salary thing too, that I find so interesting, Andy, and I think Jimbo Fisher is like the perfect example of this. It's like a year ago, people were like, oh my God, they've got an 80 million or $75 million <laughs> right. uh, problem on their hands. On the there. Hook. And like yeah. now they were on the verge of the playoff, had a top eight recruiting class and have a five-star quarterback committed in 22. And everybody in Aggie land is like, well, it's time to go now. And I think that that's just, it's just quick. It's funny how quickly that can change. And when you're the person who's writing the checks, like having the foresight or the understanding of what could change or what you're expecting is is why they get paid the big bucks, right? Well, and, and so here's here's the example this week. And I think this came actually after Jacob asked this question where Florida announced that Dan Mullen was getting a raise. Uh, I believe a $1.5 million a year raise, which makes his salary $7.5 million a year. So he was at six and now he's at seven and a half. We know there was smoke blown when some of the NFL jobs opened up. We don't know if those were real. There's been no verification that, that any NFL team was after Dan Mullen, but we know his agent at least threw it out there that, that he would consider an NFL job. And this is a good example to discuss because I think when you're looking at raises and you're looking at whether you're going to give people more years on a contract, you need to see where they where they are relative to replacement level. And, and the baseball folks know what that means. You know, wins above replacement is a big baseball stat. But replacement level general j- just means the average, the 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 basic model. And you know, where is Dan Mullen relative to that? I would say he's above it because Will Muschamp and Jim McElwain were not as successful as Dan Mullen at Florida. He's been successful, but has he won the SEC? No. Has he won a national championship? No. Has he made the playoff? No. So he's not that far above it. He's he's not Nick Saban above it or Dabo Sweeney above it, but he's still above it. And so what do you do? And I, I also think some of this, Ari, is keeping up with the Joneses. Like, oh, we didn't give our coach a raise or we didn't extend him out to five years. Well, People are going to look at that and say, "What's wrong with us?" You know, if you're right, the AD, right. I see. I don't think that's a smart way to look at it because things can flip on you. And Florida is a great example of that because they give Jim McElwain an extension and a raise after a second consecutive SEC East title, and then they're ready to fire him eight and a half months later. Well, now you have to pay more to fire him, although they negotiated it down for some reason. I guess we'll. We'll never know exactly what that reason was, but uh, you know it. It's a tough deal because you get this momentum, and you're like, okay, we have to give him a raise, but th- it can flip just as quickly. and And I think Mullen's an interesting example because I think Mullen has done a really good job at Florida. I think if Dan Mullen gets Florida to nine and three this year, that is a phenomenal coaching job given their schedule, given the circumstances. And I bet the fan base won't be happy with it if that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. So the question I have for you, and, and when you were talking, it kind of hit me. It's just like, 
How many coaches would you say, or how rare in the sport would you say, like having wins above replacement is? How much well, of a commodity is that? Let's try to make a list. I, I mean, we can come up with some obvious ones with Saban, with Dabo Sweeney. I, I would Matt Campbell is like the prime example of wins above replacement. I mean, he's winning winning nine a year at Iowa State. Like we know what replacement level at Iowa State is. It's four or five, and he's way above it. So I, I think that's that's an easy one. Lincoln Riley, I'd say, is is way above replacement because yeah, Oklahoma's traditionally good, but look at the just how much better they've been than even they're traditionally good under Lincoln Riley. Uh, Ryan Day, obviously, you know, Mark Stoops, you and I bring him up a lot, but we kind of know what replacement level is at Kentucky, and he's above it. I I just feel like it's a lot. I don't know if you agree with that. So, like, when you were talking about do you extend somebody, do you call their bluff, that's the interesting thing about this because there are – a pretty pretty solid number of coaches where I think I would put in that in that discussion, like Kirby Smart's one, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think Ed Orgeron is one. I think you've got to give him yes. that benefit of the doubt because they want a, a national. I think Sam Pittman is one. Yes, so far Kyle Whittingham yeah. is one. Oh, um, Kyle Whittingham's sort of the, the the reigning king of wins above yeah. replacement. But what about Mario Cristobal? One hundred percent. Now, but that's um, this is not a lot. This is still the the minority of coaches. I I what would what would you put the percentage on there? I, I mean, I think there's well, a lot. Well, I, I what about I, Herm I, Edwards? Is he one? Yes, yeah, so far. Well, is he? I think. What about he, Justin he's Wilcox? Do a little more. Yes, they just had their Justin best Wilcox. Rec- it was like I think I could okay. do this all day. Mm, I don't think you could. I think you're running out. Yeah. What about James Franklin? Uh, I think yes. I think he is too. Yeah. Who else in the bit? Paul Christ. Paul Christ. I mean, I don't Kirk know. Ferentz. The thing about Wisconsin that we always talk about too is like what that would be <laughs> like a really interesting Does story. Doesn't matter. Yeah. 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 I think that would be a really interesting story. But what what about Mike Loxley? They haven't won anything yet. I don't yet, think we've that, had that, enough time. Yeah. Mel but, Tucker, but not I enough wonder, time. Hard to tell. How much can you put in your into recruiting rankings and recruiting um, success into that equation? Or is it only you can only use win, win and losses? You've got to ultimately win. But the thing with Loxley is recruiting success buoys you right now and gives you some time to prove you can win. And I guess he hasn't been you know, around there but pe- enough. Yeah. If he's at to, the end of year four or five and he's still not winning, it's not going to matter. Yeah, it's a pretty big year recruits. for them. But what about P.J. Fleck? What about Pat Fitzgerald? Well, Pat Fitzgerald, one hundred percent. PJ Fleck, probably. Yeah. I mean, given what about given Tom what Allen? Seen, absolutely. I got a good one. What, what about, about Mike Gundy? Yep, that's why they keep. Well, here's the thing: he he feels like he's falling back toward replacement level, and and that's why I'm, I'm not sure they're going to protect him the way they have because they they've dealt with a lot from him. He's flirted with a lot of other jobs, you know. He's not been the easiest one to get, and, and the AD didn't get along with him, and I, I get that. But that hasn't been the greatest relationship all the time. The question is, can he keep winning enough to have a, a somewhat rocky relationship with the school and still be employed? I would argue he needs to win more than he has been to do that. Right. So yeah. it's, I, I, it's a tough so one. But the mullet... I so could do far, this all so day. I, I, honestly, yeah, okay. I think I, I don't think it's as big of a commodity as you think it is. 
So what you're saying you shouldn't. Get those what about raises? Scott Satterfield? What about Jeff Collins? Scott Satterfield, we don't know because he's had one good year and one terrible year. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like, I, what now, if, here's, you, if you could he, name 20, 20 coaches, which we probably just did, right? And there are 60 whatever power five schools. Yeah. It's still 30, a third. If you're a third already, and we haven't list everybody, like, I don't know, like, where would you put Dave Cutcliffe? Well, there's, a, there's another could, factor here, Ari, that you're not considering. And, and I'll bring back the Dan Mullen example. So for Dan Mullen, where's he going to go? Is the other factor like if we're talking about Sam Pittman, where is he going to go? Now I don't. I think that that's probably a bad example because he really does want to retire there. But where is he going to go is a legitimate question for somebody at a job like Arkansas. Where is he going to go for a, a job like Florida? Where is he going to go? The, he can go to the NFL, or there's only maybe five or six college jobs that you could go to that would be an upgrade that would pay you more. So. That's the other thing you have to consider when you're doling out these raises is the where's he going to go question. The, yeah, that's a that's a, a really good point. And I think that's, you know, obviously something that's always a factor when it comes to this. But the I just not even just maybe not even using Florida as the example. But if you could say, and I don't know if you would agree with me, but 30% of coaches are outperforming the expectation level in the power five based on. Like I, I where, think that's where fair. Are. It's probably it's probably a bell curve. That that probably makes sense. So, but that that's I think an extraordinarily high number, and I'm wondering if you think it's smart for for ads and Power Five programs and the administrations to give out these outlandish raises and extensions for fear of losing a person. When really, at a place like Florida, they should be able to get any number of the guys that we just just named. It's except, like how much except of a commodity they have is, two recent examples of not being able to. And that and that's yeah, the and problem. I guess burden the hand, right? You know, you right. you have something that you feel like is there. But Florida, I feel like would be one of the schools that would have a chance to go get somebody who is a proven entity enough to at least match what they're doing right now. And I know that it takes time, uh, but I, I wouldn't say that Florida is drastically exceeding expectations for what we know that program could achieve. I think no, that they're and, right and above that's, the that's, line. That's my argument is even if they have a good year this year, if it is not an SEC championship type year, the fan, a certain percentage of the fan base will start to get antsy and say, well, expectations are not being met. And so that's why I, I think you have to be careful locking people in for long periods of time because that can turn very quickly. And then all of a sudden you'd be in a position where you don't want to keep the person. Yeah. It's like, it's just walking a tightrope, right? You know, you, you have the money and you might think it's a good way to spend it. And, you know, those extensions, I think they view as insurance policies just in case you you, you put yourself in a position yeah. where you can't lose oh, the person. I'll give you an example of this. Ari, Gus. Gus Malzahn, post-2017. Can't lose him. Can't lose him to Arkansas. Yeah. And then you're paying $27.5 million or – was it 20, 20 and a half million? What that yeah. buyout was enormous. It was a lot of money. Oh, 27 and a half was the total amount with his staff and everybody, but 20 and a half million dollars to make him go coach UCF. Yeah. The amount of money that is spent on buyouts can solve uh, a lot of issues uh, <laughs> in this world. And, you know, that's just part of the game, you know, and I think coach, I think colleges understand too, that uh, during these negotiation processes and all these things, I think like Jim Harbaugh is another one, you know, uh, and, and I 
I can't tell you how much I respect the idea of finishing the job and agreeing to take a salary cut because I don't think that that would happen at most places. Um, well, and I think you, Word, Word Manual deserves credit for even bringing it up. Like, I'm not yeah. sure a lot of ADs would have even thought to bring that up. And, and yeah, that situation. It's a nice middle way. And I like, because yeah. the whole discussion here, Andy, is smart ADs and using the money that the university has at its disposal in the best possible way. And I think when you look at what Michigan did, I think that, and it's a different example because Harbaugh was underperforming, whereas Mullen, we would say, is overperforming, or, or but, at least but they, at that But they never, they never take an underperforming coach and say, you know what? We're not sure what we, how much better we can do, so we're just going to pay you less. And I, I don't know if, if, if Harbaugh is represented by Jimmy Sexton or Trace Armstrong or one of the big agents, does that happen? I don't, I don't even know if that happens. I don't know if he even agrees to that. But, yeah, well, he doesn't. Yeah, he's off in his own world with that stuff. So I think that like yeah. is a very interesting scenario. But I also feel like thinking outside the box uh, is something that I just feel like it's a robotic mode a little bit with how these extensions and, and these salaries are handed out. It's, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what everybody else does. So we're going to do it. And, you know, Michigan also, while negotiating that new contract with Harbaugh, I believe made it very easy to fire him after this year without paying much of a buyout afterward too. So that, that so on they, top of they, it, they, they essentially made it where it cost to fire him after this season, what it would have cost to fire him before this season with his old contract. Is so his old contract right? They lose. They lose nothing in the deal, other than a year. And I, I the time value of money, folks are going to get all over us on that one. But they, you and I went through this. How many times did we go through this on the podcast before Michigan decided to bring him back? Of, are they sure they can do better a right lot. now? Is there an obvious like? I think Matt Campbell would be the obvious choice, but Matt Campbell has shown no super hard, you know, big desire to leave Iowa state. So who's to say he would even take the job? I think, I think that using Michigan as an example of what can be done is a fun thought, but I think that the extent, the circumstances of the head coach at Michigan, Jim Harbaugh and the way that he Correct. deals with contracts and stuff is like a unicorn. So it's, it's really hard to make parallels, but I do love the idea that in a, in a situation where it could work that, there's a win-win scenario here. I think Michigan gets off the hook a little bit financially for a person that hasn't necessarily reached the potential that the program feels like it has. But on the same time, too, the person uh, in Jim Harbaugh who is still there believes that he can finish the job and is willing to do that at a cheaper rate. I think it, it's kind of, it makes it hard for me not to root for them because I respect Yes, that. because I, I think I, that that's, I, that's like a legit – I think that's a really like – awesome way to do it for both. For I think both there's parties. a bunch of ADs rooting for Michigan this year. Gene Smith obviously isn't, but almost everybody else probably is because they want to see this work and they want to be like, wait, can I do this with my coach instead of yeah, just paying because, a buyout and then paying somebody else? Well, what's the percentage, Andy, you think when a coach is fired, what is the percentage of those firings where somebody's sitting in the room writing a pros and cons list and going, yeah, but this, but then what about this? But what about the, and like, it's not always clear cut. Jim Harbaugh, everybody, it's so easy to write fire Jim Harbaugh columns. There's reason to do it. I believe that to be the case. But when you think about all the other factors of not where is he going to go, but who are you going to get with the idea of him having a new staff and all the things that, you know, could happen at Michigan, it wasn't a clear cut, obvious thing to do. And I wonder no. if half of the firings aren't obvious or clear cut 
how much money could be saved by thinking outside of the box when you're in that territory of should we give him one or two more years or should we fire him? Yeah, and a lot of this is emotional, which is crazy when you think about the dollar figures that are involved. That it, you know, the idea of spending that much money on a feeling rather than a more calculated examination of the facts. Right. I mean, it, but that's what it is. A lot of this is purely emotional. So, yeah, Jacob, great question. I, I'm not sure that this is going to change unless unless Jim Harbaugh wins big and you know ads are suddenly emboldened to to offer pay cuts to stay. But because I, most people would I take the buyout money rather happen. than wouldn't most people just take the buyout money? Yes, if, if you most gave eight, like if you like took a hundred coaches in college football, their, and said, a, their we'll agents cut. would tell them to take the buyout money because it's it's yeah. bad for business for coaches and for agents to do what Jim Harbaugh did. Yeah, if you had the opportunity to say keep your job for another year, give it another crack at it at half the salary, or take your buyout money and get fired, I think the vast majority of people would take. I think the best deal in, in the world is being a fired football coach. So yeah. I don't. It's just like Jim Harbaugh lives in his own world about everything and Michigan was very fortunate that that also applied to to finances because I'll be honest with you there's a lot of uh interesting personalities in the world but everybody's generally the same and that's don't touch my money you know that's one mm-hmm. universal thing in life it's so easy to you know think about all the things that happen in life but when it comes to your money and, and your assets like nobody touches that and he let and, somebody and touch his money so for those of you who don't like Jim Harbaugh just remember this is a guy that looked at this situation and instead of taking $8 million to just go away, said, you know what? I'll take half of that to prove that I can do the damn job. And real, and you can say, well, he's already got a bunch of money. But how many of these other guys would have done that? I don't I, – I haven't gotten to the point where I have too much money and wouldn't want more. But I do think that for how eccentric he is and how easy it is to get on his back and i know that i've been somebody who criticizes him quite a bit it's it's not hard to admire the i love michigan this is the place that i want to be and i want to do the job oh, like I, I don't know i think, I think that's a rare thing yeah yeah i yeah. think it makes yeah. you want to root for him because i don't think i don't think i would have done that in that situation i don't think most people would do that in that situation I would like to think I'm the kind of person who would do it, but I, I don't think I would have. Well, the good news, Andy, is, is you're not failing at your job, so that's good. You're you're worth not, every penny. Not today. I, give, yeah. give, give, it, give it a week. <laughs> think, uh, it's just like a football coach. Give it a week. Things might change. We'll be right back after these words. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, we, we, we now go into your mailbag. And this one, this is a two-parter from Drew. Ari, two questions for you. What challenges or differences do private schools like Rice, Tulane, Vanderbilt, Northwestern, et cetera, face outside of the obvious academic limitations versus public schools in recruiting prospects, if any? And then number two, does being a university of land-grant state university, which is not necessarily all of those, some of those are university state or, you know, state name state, 
Uh, but versus being a directional name school in recruiting, think University of Illinois versus Northern Illinois or University of New Mexico versus New Mexico State. If so, why do schools like the University of Massachusetts, University of Connecticut, et cetera, ne- seemingly never make any traction with higher rated prospects? Curious to know how much that difference that makes, if any, and that's from Drew. Okay, so those are those are kind of connected, but they're not connected. Yeah. Um, and the, the thing that I run into a lot, and I love doing my mailbag every week, and I think the questions uh, are awesome and things that I don't think about, and it makes me really ponder. And you know, the first thing that I thought of here, and I, I get a lot, is it's really hard to make blanket statements about everything of the like when everything in – the world of college football is different for every circumstance. Well, right. So it's like Rice you, and Northwestern are both are very different. Pres- yeah, at prestigious academic institutions in huge American cities that are private schools, but they could not be more different in terms of football. Yeah, and also if you want to just do the Power Five examples, um, Northwestern and Vanderbilt, I think you would think have very similar existences. They're both in. Uh, really good cities. They're both in very talented conferences, and they both are pres- prestigious academic schools. But Northwestern has the most beautiful football facility in North America, and they have more football buy-in from a financial standpoint than Vanderbilt is. And it's like even though you can make direct parallels about academic prowess, every single – like Vanderbilt doesn't have as much – nearly as much support even if they have the money to do it, you know. From a from just a, a program standpoint, so everything is is kind of it's hard to draw comparisons. But I did want to talk to you about this, and I think we might have talked about this uh, Stanford a few months ago. But I was on the phone doing reporting a story, and I was talking to a recruiting coordinator who worked at one of the above named institutions in the in the question, and I asked him straight up. I said, "How much do you think the academic standards really have an impact, or had an impact?" on you and your program when you were there. And it was kind of like a, a pros and cons type thing of on one hand, you can't get 85% of the kids because there's a certain academic standard that is in place to get there. But also the academic standard for a football player to get into those schools isn't as high as it is for a normal student who just wants to go there to get a business degree and never played a sport in his life or her life. So you put yourself in, a, in that position you think you're you're doomed from the get-go. But then he said there's 15% of the of the high school prospects in the country are handmade fitted for you, so it reduces your board. It gives you a more narrow focus of who you spend time with and that you feel like if there's uh, 150 prospects or 200 prospects that fit the criteria from an academic standpoint, want to play Power 5 football and have a chance to win, then you can narrow it down and recruit more effectively because you're not so spread thin. And – a lot of times these academic institutions have something that they could sell, which is a very expensive education and a prestigious education and a place to actually play in a Power 5 conference. And I think that that is a unique selling point for a pretty good prospect. And I, I frankly am surprised that Northwestern and Stanford to a certain extent has kind of slipped a little bit and Vanderbilt haven't recruited better because I know that the NIL is coming and I know that people like to freak out about how scholarships aren't compensation and I would tend to agree there's nothing better than 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 stone cold hard cash but how much does it cost to send your kid to Northwestern if he doesn't have a, he or she well, doesn't yeah, have no, a scholarship. scholarship scholarships are compensation and like I have told my kids I'm like if Stanford offers you a scholarship in anything take it like you do you know how hard it is to get in there how much did it cost for your undergrad take it 
Do you remember how much you paid? Zero dollars. I paid zero dollars. Oh, um, I think you're a bad example because you're like I had all a, world. I had an academic scholarship, and I, but but here's the thing: it costs zero dollars because of the school I chose. I chose to go to the University of Florida because it was free. I could have gone to to some of the private schools that we're talking. In fact, several of the schools that were named in the in the question, but it would have cost about half. They were offering me about half of half. what it costs. And half of what it costs is a lot more expensive than free. Okay. Well, the point I was going to make, though, and forgot that you are like all around perfect, and I love that about you. <laughs> you will be surprised to know that I didn't apply myself much in high school, and I got a 3.3 by doing nothing, and I had to pay my way through college because nobody wanted to uh, offer a scholarship to somebody who was literally average at everything. Um, and I think my undergraduate- Wait, you were, you were the replacement level student? Yeah, yeah. I, I got a 1100 on my SAT and I went there and, and, and took the test without studying for it the morning after prom. And I just got a Ooh, score that was good enough to get bad. in. <laughs> yeah. I'll never forget that. My dad took me so, and then we went so to the So basically you're in the same after. condition right now that you were when you took the SAT. Yes. Well, a little worse right now because I'm older. But um, I – We'll never forget that day because we went to Chompy's right after he, my dad dropped me off at the at the nice. place, and he's like, "So how did it go?" Strami sliders, baby. And then we went and smashed food at, at like like any father and son should in, in Phoenix. But my point is, is that I spent I think forty two hundred or something like that. My tuition was per year at Arizona. Mm-hmm. So over the course of of my four year education, and that's not including room and board and books and stuff, but it was probably a twenty five thousand dollar investment just for my regular University yeah. of Arizona diploma. How much does it go to Stanford for one year? Isn't it like $50,000 a semester or something insane like that? When you talk room, board, everything, you're looking at about 125 to 150 for your four-year experience at one of these schools. Yeah. So to me, that's a significant amount of money. Or maybe closer to 200 now that I think about it. It's probably 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 way more now. Yeah. 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 And and the other thing, too, is that your your income potential as an adult is – set at a higher standard coming out of college, depending on what your diploma is. But my point is, is that I think if I were a four-star prospect and I were choosing between Baylor and I'm not, I'm just throwing out random names. You're throwing out a private school. That's a, that's a bad example. Okay. Let's just say I'm a four-star athlete and I've got offers from, uh, university of Arizona, um, Kansas, uh, Miami and Stanford, and I have a bunch of, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe that's a weird collection of teams, but, you know, solid it's programs right. that are pretty good at football, but not amazing at football. You'd have a yeah, crazy the, experience, the, and then I get to go to Stanford. Like, I would pick Stanford 100 times out of 100. Well, maybe right. Miami's is a bad well, example, because if you're from Miami, Miami's you go to Miami. A, uh, Miami's a good school with very valuable degree, but not it's not Stanford. Yeah, and I think that you could have a similar college experience at Stanford that you would at other programs. Now, I think academically, uh, you're a little bit more uh, stressed during your career, and I know some some athletes, but I'm just saying the in- intrinsic value of going to those programs as an athlete, it's not like you're picking one or the other. You get to play in the Pac-12 in a program that has won pretty big in, our, in the recent past, and also getting the best education you can outside of maybe Harvard or Yale in that. And you you don't have to really give up both. So to me, I've always wondered, like, why isn't Stanford at least signing top 15 or top 20 classes and with all the, the really uh, high academic achieving 
three high end three and, and low end four star prospects that aren't getting the Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama offers. If you put put them in the pool with everybody else, the second middle tier team, you get to play at a middle a middle tier football program at Stanford and get the education. I think to me it should be a selling point. Well, not and, a, and not, so a, not a roadblock. I have a story coming out on a guy named uh, Eleke Omenor. He's a receiver. He plays at a, a private school, a boarding school in Massachusetts right now. But he's from Cal- he's from Canada. He's originally from Alberta, and he's on the tour now because it's June. Everybody can go out. So he was at Notre Dame this past weekend. He's going to look at Northwestern. He's going to look at Stanford. But he's also looking at Tennessee. Uh, Iowa's offered him as well, and. I asked him, I, I believe Duke is another school that he wants to look at that's offered him. And I asked him, I said, you know, you've got a lot of high academic schools on your on your list here. And, and actually, his recruitment started with most of the Ivies offering him. And so, you know, his thing is, I'm looking for the best of the best in, in both if I can get it. And I said, what's it going to take for one of these schools that isn't of a very high academic caliber to get you? He said... He said, there are places you can go, you know, where you find the, the major that they are really good at and you can, you can get a good degree there too. He's like, but they are going to have to work harder because I obviously want this. I want the, the kind of degree that, that opens doors, that sort of thing. So this is the type of person we're talking about where that's who you're selling to. I, I, I don't know what the statistic is because I don't work for the – what's the um – the Princeton Review, or what's the one that? Yeah, or U.S. News and World Report, which doesn't do anything yeah, but yeah. college rankings now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I think I read a stat somewhere that if you go to an Ivy League school or a Stanford or maybe even a Northwestern, that your lifetime um, income potential is like worth one point five million dollars more than everybody else's that started at the same point at went to a public state school because of starting out, you know, at a higher salary when you get out of school and having better opportunities. And to me. I know when you're a high school football recruit who's a four-star prospect, you're not thinking about making $1.5 million more than your peers in your 9-to-5 or your accounting job. But that is a, a that is a lot of money over the course of a lifetime. And I'm not saying that you know you can't be successful from other schools. I mean, look at me. I went to U of A, and I'm like the epitome of success, right? There you go. Yeah. You're, you're in Vegas, I, baby, right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm in Vegas. You're just, uh, you're just hanging in Vegas on a random weekend. Who does this? Uh, and I'm coming back in two weeks. <laughs> Yo, exactly. <Yeah. laughs> um, so. No, but 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 I do think that it is an interesting point where if you like read comments in a lot of the stories that I write about this sort of thing, everybody always goes, and this is a University of Michigan thing too. Well, it's just harder to get the the kids committed because they can't get in. I think that's kind of wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying across the board that every prospect, can, but I think for the most part, these kids are 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 admitted at lower standard than than a regular student would be and yeah they, I also they can think get that a they lot more an, people in than you think it's right. a lot of it with the with the high academic schools is making sure they're the type of person that will continue to do work to stay in right. that's that's Notre Dame right there is, and it's test scores like yeah, if you don't have the yeah. score you don't have the score so like that's I think there's some wiggle room when it comes to grade point average and stuff but you, you need to have the test score but I do think that a place like Stanford, if it were, if it were, if Stanford were in the conversation to be uh, with Oregon and USC to be the best in the Pac-12 in Washington, I don't think that that would be shocking. Like I, I, I don't know if I'm being naive about this. No, but I, I do think, think they were that, using like think about think about the class where they landed Walker Little. Didn't they? They landed two top five offensive linemen. 
Like two, they yeah. top top five in the country offensive linemen, like top top twenty in the country recruits. Like they they had created a brand where essentially if you were the type of top recruit who was looking at a higher academic school or who would consider a higher academic school, Stanford was on the top of your list. Yeah. Um, so I, I like I almost let me just you know put you on the spot here, Andy. If you are a high-end academic institution like the ones that we just were speaking about, is that a pro or a con from a football standpoint to you? It's a pro. It should be a pro every single time. It shouldn't be the thing that you say, well, our our academic standards are too high. That's why we can't compete. Well, I, and also I, I think that's part of the change in the way – you and I have talked a lot about how recruits look at things differently, how it's much more of a business decision now. And yes – it is still a business decision, first and foremost, of where are these people going to get me drafted? But I think if you look at the, especially with Stanford, if you look at where Stanford players have gone in the draft, if you look at, I mean, look at Northwestern, look at Rashawn Slater going first round this year. Like, you can be a first rounder from these places, so why not have everything? I mean, that that's, as a recruit, would be the way I would be looking at it. Why not have everything? Yeah, I, I agree with you. The most value you can extract from a, a transaction is the is the best deal that you can get. And I do I don't know if this is going too far. I like to say dramatic things when I feel them, and sometimes it's do. not always. But I think like one of the biggest cons in all of college football is convincing top tier talents that they have to go to one of six schools to get drafted. I think oh, that those schools 100%. obviously have more resources. Their facilities are better. They win at the highest level. But I don't think if you're a top 50 player and you're legitimately amazing in high school that you have to go to Alabama to get drafted. I, I think that if you went to Stanford and you were really good, you would have no problem getting drafted. So the idea that yeah, you have I mean, to do that. Look, let's say you, you go to Ole Miss. I mean, they're going to be watching you when they watch Alabama play Ole Miss. So if you right. pop, you're going to pop. And the thing, too, is. And it's it's a again a chicken and the egg type thing. But does Alabama, Ohio State have uh, the most draft picks because their development and their facilities and their coaches are infinitely better than every other coach and facility in the country, or do they have better players coming in so more players go out? That's the thing that is come be developed here is Ohio State's thing developed here, and it's just like. Well, the development at Ohio State, I'm not trying to take it away from them because they've done a tremendous job developing draft picks. But if you have 12 top 100 players coming in in a single recruiting class, that's that's like the bare minimum of what should happen, right? Well, How it, much it, of it is it, development and how much is, is being ahead of the curve from a talent standpoint before you even get to college? It's easier to make a, a Wagyu ribeye taste good than a handful of, of tofu. It just or just is. like regular chuck beef. Yeah. No, it so, you, you can make and I'm not saying you don't have to be hammer. a – Yeah, well, you, you you don't have to – I'm not saying that you don't have to be really good at developing and creating a culture and doing things the right way at, at the college. These programs continually win because they recruit, but they also have the best uh, infrastructures in college football. I'm not trying to take anything away from them. But the reason why the draft pick numbers are so over the top in like six first-round draft picks – uh, it was the record that Alabama tied with Miami this year. Um, I think probably has a lot to do with the fact that they're getting the most advanced athletes out of the gate. So yeah. 
the idea that there's this like monopoly on I want to go to the place that develops the best. It's like no, you're just going to go to the place that has the most good players and the likeliest uh, well, opportunity to develop that's, those that's guys. That's what I wrote before the national championship game. Making first round draft picks makes its own gravy. If you make a few first round draft picks, more great recruits are going to want to come because they also want to be first round draft picks. So it it's it's one of those things that. Yes, it makes it fairly prohibitive for schools like Alabama and Ohio State and Clemson. But if you can start, like Clemson did this. Clemson had that that run of D linemen where, you know, Grady Jarrett became, you know, it just sort of moved. Well, maybe Daquan Bowers became Grady Jarrett became and, and and it sort of kept going and they kept creating all these really good defensive linemen. And they did it at the receiver position as well. You know, DeAndre Hopkins, uh, Sammy Watkins, those guys. And all of a sudden, Clemson was the place you wanted to go if you wanted to be developed into a first rounder. So you can do it from scratch. You don't have to be already creating those guys. I am writing this this story next week about how lopsided the um, recruiting rankings are and how that can be reversed. And, you know, Clemson and I think maybe Oregon is another example of how they were able to develop into teams that were doing this, but like Patrick Sertan was drafted very high and it's just like, he was the number six player in the 2018 class. Did Alabama make him a first rounder or did they sign a first rounder? <laughs> or did being, yeah, it being the, the son of an NFL cornerback who has even better physical attributes than his dad, who was the, an NFL cornerback. But which one do you think it was? Helped that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think he was a first round draft pick anywhere? Or do you think that I Alabama think made him one? I think it's some of I I don't think it's a hundred percent of either one. I think it's, it's with with that one, it's probably fifty fifty. If Patrick Sertan went to Stanford, he would be a first round pick. I, I, I would say that. I think so. Or Texas A and M or Yeah. Uh, or Wisconsin. Yeah. No, I think you're probably right on yeah. that. So and like the, the maybe Stanford I'm wrong. Maybe it's not fifty fifty uh, on that one. Yeah, no, it's probably 70-30, I think. I think you have to have the inherent ability uh, to move and react and do all the things that you have to be able to do on a football field to be a first-round Get, pick. Getting but, to play against the talent level he played against the practice every day made him better. You know, there there are some things that, that he we'll, got we'll out of Alabama your, that he wouldn't have gotten out of other places. I think we'll stick with the same uh, analogy that you had with the stake, right? He was Wagyu beef, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. He just got cooked in a really nice kitchen with all the best appliances and best pans and best spices. Mm-hmm. But if you if you cooked that same piece of meat in my apartment when I was a bachelor six years ago, you still could have made a really badass it's, steak. It's that, still it's still delicious, exactly. Yeah, and no, if you don't have right. the premium beef to begin with, then you're not making the steak. So I think the first yeah. thing comes first, and then the refining of that thing is what happens after. And those programs have perfected the, you know, cause not every program does. Texas hasn't refined their, their beef. Oh, I think that's a great example. That's yeah. A, it's, and, and it's not, and it's the not Texas beef council is very mad at us for, for using this analogy. So, yeah. but, but I think you're, I, I think you're right. I mean, that, that's the best example you can give is they get the, the best ingredients, but don't turn out the best final dish. Whereas right. Alabama takes the best ingredients, serves you the, the award-winning dish, and you pay you know handsomely for it and are glad you did and bragged all your friends that you that you ate at that restaurant. Yeah, I agree. Uh, 
And if it, I hope that if there's coaches or recruiting staffers listening to this, they don't go, Ari's an asshole because he thinks that these programs don't do a good job. Like, that's not what I'm saying at all. You have to be able to take your your uh, your your players and turn them into what they they have to be before they get drafted. And I know it's a skill and the coaches at those places are tremendous and all the things that go into it. I'm just saying they're getting a premium product out of the gate. So they have a shorter path to developing that premium product than a team like Stanford would, if they'd have a three-star defensive lineman. And that's, it's a different skill set. It's, it's still not easy to do what the, what the Alabamas and Ohio States do, but it's a different skill set. We'll be right back after this message from one of our lovely sponsors. Let's get to the second part of Drew's question. The does being a university of help you because this, we, we have an example of this recently, Ari, and I don't know how many people have noticed or if anybody even cares. And, and that's what I'm curious about. Cause clearly this university made this branding decision because they thought it would matter and it would help, but I don't know if it matters or not. So what are, what school do the Ragin Cajuns represent? What do you mean? You want me to say like what's the, the name the of the school? What's the name of the school? Uh, University of Louisiana Lafayette. Not Is anymore. Right? They are call they call themselves the University of Louisiana now. And so in in our lifetimes, Ari, it's been Southwestern Louisiana. Oh, it is Louisiana. Louisiana when did that happen? And now it's exactly so about two or three years ago. And oh. so, and I always thought it was interesting with. With Ohio and with Louisiana. So in Ohio, obviously, the Ohio State University is the flagship university, the, the big state university, the one you know everybody wants to go to. And there is no University of Ohio. There is Ohio University, which sounds like a hell of a place to go to college, to be honest. Everybody like, who you, goes there is obsessed with it. It's a fun you town. You party there. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but Louisiana is the same thing. Louisiana State University, LSU – is the big school. There was no University of Louisiana, and I'm sure some of our, our friends from Louisiana could probably explain all the politics of that to us. But it seems to me that the Ragin' Cajuns have claimed University of Louisiana as their own. I, I don't know how the people in Monroe feel about that or the people at Nickel State or the people at Northwestern State feel about that, but it's interesting because that feels like a branding attempt not just for sports, but for everything to, to draw more people to you, maybe draw more applicants or to draw more eyeballs as, as a, an athletic department. I feel like an idiot for not, for not actually like, now that I think about it, you know, I remember them being, I just always thought it was, I always just think ULL when you think about that right. and that's not it. But, yeah, and, it's and just like, but they're working their butts off to make you not think that because that's what UCF's sort of the same way, but a little bit different. Because they don't want to be, they don't want to be called Central Florida. They don't even want to be called the University of Central Florida, even though that is the school's name. They want to be referred to as UCF, so they can be like USC or LSU or TCU, where they're just known by the acronym. Because they don't want to be directional. This this is what remind this reminds me of the discussion that we had a few months ago about Rutgers and New Jersey State. Right. The University of New Jersey seems like it would be more inviting than than Rutgers University. But do you think so? Th- this is but just I don't a think branding, it would change anything a from a recruiting standpoint. This is more of a branding discussion than a recruiting discussion, because 
I think your football brand supersedes everything. I don't think it matters what your name is if your football brand, like Clemson University, Clemson could be, if, if you called Clemson South Carolina A&M, it would still be the same thing. You know, it'd still be the same school and would still probably have a good football program because it would still be the, you know, everything would be the same thing. If you called Auburn, Auburn's original name was um, Alabama Polytechnic Institute, API. If it was still called that, I think they'd still have a good football team because it still would have been all the same people who cared about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing that I always wanted to, and maybe this is like a um, 2021 problem and not a 20. 2005 or 1995 problem, but I wonder because branding is such a big part of recruiting now. I wonder if certain names make it harder for a school to recruit. I, I think I am convinced that Rutgers, you know, like the name of Rutgers, has made it harder for them to recruit not just or, or players some, in New Jersey. Or do some make it better, like the University of South Florida. Like, okay. Yeah, I where, didn't realize that they were not in South Florida until like five years ago. Right, like right. It, it where took, they are in yeah. Tampa, they're they're pretty far inland in Tampa. <laughs> you know, they're they're in uh, they're over by Temple Terrace, and so that's not South like, Florida. That's I think yeah, it's you're really, thinking really beaches. Deceiving. They're not near the beach. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the, what are they? They are. They should actually be called um, Middle wait, wait, Mid Middle well, should, East. Well, they, not Middle. They should East, be the University of West Florida, but there is a University of West Florida in Pensacola. Oh yeah, no, yeah. University of the Middle West, Florida. <laughs> or there's or not north they or south, it, right? They're like right in the middle, right? Yeah. Well, they, or they call it Florida, Florida Gulf Coast. That was that was that name was available when USF was created, and that's the name they did use for the school they created in Fort Myers. Dunk City is is Florida Gulf Coast University. Yeah, that would have been a good name for USF when they created it, but not South Florida because it's not. I mean, it's not. It's not South. And and you have to understand. When you're in Florida, the phrase South Florida does not refer to the entire southern portion of the state. It refers to the southeast portion of the state. Southwest Florida is its own thing. So Isn't it just I thought that was just swampland down there. That's uh that's the glades. South, Southwest Florida? No, no, Naples and Fort Myers and, no, I'm just, and I'm, I'm Sarasota. Just, I always like joke. Yeah. It's like yeah, yeah. But when I think of somebody who doesn't live in Florida, when I think of South Florida, I think of Miami. That's the right. one I hear. Like well, South Florida think, is Miami. That's what we who live in Florida think of when, okay. when we say South Florida. So. Yeah. So like I used to think that South Florida was down there. Um, I used to think maybe up until that like five or FIU six years is? ago that that that's that, no where it's uh, like was in Boca where FAU is. Oh, where like FAU I thought is. it was okay. like yeah. I thought that that's it was just in one of those general areas down there that wasn't Miami but one of the the northern Miami towns. It's it is it's an interesting one because I I have not I had not thought about it till I saw that question and I don't think that matters I think your football history tradition the reason UMass doesn't move the meter in recruiting isn't because it's called it has nothing to do with it being the University of Massachusetts or it's UMass like the only thing I think of when I think of UMass athletically is John Calipari and Marcus Camby like that's it yeah well also too. It's not. I, I think that the branding thing is an interesting discussion for 2021. But I wonder too if, um, you know, the brands that you're built off of that inherent value that you have as a program and what you're known for, 
It's like UMass was just never in a place where football was prioritized. So it doesn't matter right. what the university was called. You're in a place that doesn't have a ton of talent and never was – like football isn't – I mean maybe with the with the Patriots and stuff. I've got some friends that live in Boston. I've been there a few times. But that doesn't strike me as like a football-crazed area of the country. Um, no. And no, there's I, just not I, I a lot of talent. I don't think the University there. of New and, Jersey would do much better. There's what – but there's much <laughs> it was more – the University of New Jersey. Yeah, but there's much more talent in that area. So some of these places, too, it's like, well, why isn't UMass doing well? It's because there's no players around them. That has nothing to do with what they're yeah. called. University and, of and when there is no one, players. Christian Wilkins goes to Clemson, goes to goes to yeah. South Carolina A&M. Yeah, and like, I don't know, like, what's the difference between – because in the, in the example in the question, he said University of Illinois versus Northern Illinois University. I think you could make the argument that Northern Illinois has been far more successful in the last 15 years than Illinois has. It's just in their own yeah. regard. Yeah, you'd be right. Is it – yeah, now Northern Illinois, I think, should play up its proximity to Chicago a little more, and, and I, they have locally. Like, if you drive around there, you see billboards and stuff, but in recruiting, I think you, you would try to play that up a little more, because Northern Illinois sounds pretty remote, but if you look at a map, you realize, oh, this is not, this isn't far from Chicago at all. Yeah, yeah, what if their their name was Northern Chicago University? Yeah, something like that. Would that now, be I misleading? That, that not any more misleading than USF. <laughs> exactly exactly yeah you, you gotta you gotta really specify your suburbs when you're, when you're naming your university so that's a, that's a good one. ari i i did i did get one life advice question for ari question for this week and I'm it's from our never been Kimmy more hung over in my life so this is perfect perfect timing this is something you won't be doing this weekend at all i can guarantee you this but Kimmy i'm because I'm, I'm gonna be blindsided what is the best way to fold a t-shirt? Oh my God. This is so funny that you asked me that because I get into, I got into a fight with my fiance about this like four days ago. So what, here's what I do. And you tell me if I'm crazy. I lay the shirt out flat face down on the bed. So the front of the shirt is, okay. is down and yep. I take the left sleeve and I fold the shirt's sleeve in. So like the side of the shirt's a little folded and then I take the right yeah, vertically. Sleeve. You bring you bring one yeah, side yeah. over to bring the middle over, yes. but it's not just the sleeve. Part of the shirt also folds over. Then I take yep. the other sleeve, pull it, and this is a short sleeve shirt, and pull it in, and then take it from the bottom and and lay it into the top of the shirt. Now, okay. if I have a long sleeve shirt, this is what the argument was about. I do the same exact process, but then I fold take the, the bottom half over. and I fold the sleeve back over, yes. which then creates kind of a crease if you ever want to wear it in the sleeve. And then Britt, my fiance, has spent a lot of time in her early life working retail, and she can fold shirts like nothing. She'll go through an entire load of laundry with 15 or 20 shirts and do all of them in, in three minutes. And for me, well, it so takes me I, like a I solid minute. I retail for a bit, and we had the folding boards, the plastic boards yeah. that – you had to use them because the, everything had to be folded a certain way to to display properly. And so that's how I learned to fold. But then we watched the Marie Kondo show on Netflix, and all of a sudden I wasn't allowed to fold that way anymore. So I, now I have to fold it very similar to the way you would fold a short sleeve shirt, except instead of bringing the, bringing the bottom of the shirt to the top to get the fold, I now have to roll it to the top and then place it in the drawer in a rolled your, form. Your shirts are rolled? Yes, basically. They're rolled like is that, sushi. Is that because... Or a burrito. You th- is it because you think that's the... So this is your wife's mandate? 
This is Marie Kondo's mandate that my wife has since adopted. Yes. Because Marie Kondo like, is that's this, funny. this little Japanese lady who tells, tells people how to organize their stuff. Okay. Well, I have to fold our bath towels, and I hate it. So we have we – have, uh, That's the easiest thing to fold. It's But it's never symmetrical. And if you ever – and one day I hope you meet Britt, you'll know that she likes things to be very organized and looked very, very good. So like this is what the fight – you know, we we talked about like the idea of making sure that every folded shirt looks similar, and like mine aren't always symmetrical. One folded shirt might be a little off kilter to the left. One might oh. be off to the right. And <laughs> but our bath towels, I have to fold. You know, you fold it and then I have to roll it up and then we have to stick it into the cupboard so that when you open the cupboard, you have twenty or five or ten bath towels that are perfectly folded the same way. And that's really really hard. And it's just like. It's in the cupboard. Those are the easiest to fold the same way every time. They're rectangles. But no, but sometimes, no, but sometimes, like, like if you ever rolled a towel, sometimes well, I don't like roll the, any the end I don't, sticks I don't roll out. The sometimes the towels we don't roll. Marie Kondo didn't tell us to roll our towels. She told us to, to fold them flat. So. Um, now that we're now that we're having this discussion, I wanted to have it uh, before we okay. go because I, I love talking about this stuff. So I also have gotten into a confrontation. Uh, and we're married, we're very much in love, so don't, don't take this the wrong way, but we just argue about organization, organizational things around the house. Sometimes she has to make the bed completely every morning. And when I say make yes. the bed, I don't just mean mm-hmm. put the comforter back where it was. I mean, go into the other side of the room, grab a bunch of throw pillows and do the mm-hmm. whole throw pillow thing. And then you have yep. to take the, the blanket that we use you know, there's like an extra blanket and we have to roll the blanket up in a certain way and then lay it flat on the side of the bed. It's like, it looks like a display from bed, bath and beyond in our bed oh, yeah. every morning. And we can't go through the day unless it's that perfect. And she likes, she can't sleep unless the sheet is completely flat. So, you know, if a sheet kind of rolls up and there's a little bunch in it, she mm-hmm. cannot sleep in that scenario. So we have to like yank the sheets down and make it as tight as possible every single day. And I find that to be a waste of time. Okay, I was just like you early in my life and early in my marriage. And I have come around completely, not not really because of her brainwashing me. It is as you when and you're about to have a kid too. When you have kids, as your life gets more and more messy, as your life gets more and more chaotic, certain things will give you a little slice of serenity. And one of those is making your bed in the morning. Have you heard the Admiral McRaven's speech? Have no, you heard I, William I, McRaven's I, speech on making your bed? So no, I, William I McRaven, I he was addressing the graduating class of the University of Texas in 2014. He's a graduate of Texas himself. Uh, he was a Navy SEAL. He then became basically the head of all special operations forces for the United States military uh, and then became the chancellor of the U- University of Texas system, by the way. Uh, this speech, I think, <laughs> put him over the top. But he he was explaining the 10 things you learn while training to become a SEAL. And number one is make your bed. And he makes the best case for making your bed every day that I have ever heard. And I'm hoping this is the part of the speech that 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 I want here. To me, basic SEAL training was a lifetime of challenges crammed into six months. You're going to learn something. So here are the 10 Just lessons listen. I learned from basic SEAL training that hopefully will be of value to you as you move forward in life. Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, 
The corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened SEALs. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, <laughs> that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. That is the best advice I have ever heard about anything. And I will tell you, and I've changed on this over the years. Like when I was 20, it would not have mattered to me if I walked into the room and the bed was unmade because I didn't make my bed ever. Now when I walk, because either, depending on who gets up first and, and who gets up second, either Anne or I will make the bed. But one of us will make the bed. When I walk into the bedroom and the bed is made, my mind is just calmer. I just feel better. Let me ask you this. Do you have enough throw pillows to open up a franchise of Bed Bath & Beyond on your bed too? Hell yeah. And do you have to like organize the, the throw pillows have a place on our bed? Absolutely. And if I put them in the wrong place, Britt will move them to the right place. Well, why don't you just learn where the right place is and get well, it right? I, I do. I do. I do. Ari, but if you can't do the little things right, you'll never get the big things right. <laughs> random ranking for next week. Okay. The worst tasks, home chores. Done. Done. And I, and I that's think next that, week. Okay, I won't. I think you know where I'm going with this, but that is just miserable. Especially if you have a king size bed, the fitted sheet. Like, it's not, it's not, I'm not saying that the Navy SEALs aren't amazing at making their beds, but that bed is probably far, is a twin mattress on a bunk bed, I'm assuming. <laughs> so, this, you're this like, bed you're that like we Navy live in, SEALs never had to deal with throw pillows. <laughs> never. <laughs> I think that's a great place to leave it for today. Ari needs to go back to bed. His bed is unmade. My bed is made. Ari is showing me his. Oh my god! Did you <laughs> did you have an exorcism in your bed? Like, like did you lift off the bed while someone someone was screaming well, at you? There's a Seinfeld episode too about how this happens to me every time. But in hotels, how they tuck the sheet so far underneath the bed oh, that yeah. you can't even get in. You gotta so kick every it out. night. I kick it out as hard as I can, and I I like wail around and try to get it out, and it does look like uh, a disaster happened in there. But I also had some friends in here watching the the NBA game last night. There's beer cans all over the place. There's popcorn on the floor. This is the, the tasks for today aren't going to be completed. And I guess I I kind of ruined the ending there. But let me just close with this: Navy SEALs have never had to deal with throw pillows. Truer words never been spoken, Ari. Never been spoken. We'll talk to you on Wednesday.